Let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 22. We're going to be, and I want you to put a marker in Psalm 22 because all morning long we're going to be flipping back to it. And then we will also be looking at the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So make your fingers nimble. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I want you to start out in Psalm 22. Really, I want us to start out in prayer. So would you bow your head with me? Father, we uh, thank you for this beautiful day that you have given to us. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for your love. Thank you for sending us your son to die for us. We know, Lord, that it was difficult, but he emptied the cup of wrath so that he might fill it with blessings for us. And how we praise you for that. We do thank you for the opportunity we have to set apart this hour to get to know you better through the life of your son. We thank you for all that you are teaching us through, through this study of his passion on the cross. Most of all, Lord, we want to, to magnify and, and glorify your son. I just pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would would do just that and that they would be pleasing in your sight because that's what we want to do most of all. We want to please you and, and glorify our Savior. For we do pray in his blessed name. Amen. You know, at the time of the Lord's birth, you all have little nativity scenes at home, right? When he was laid in a wooden manger in that very peaceful setting of a, um, whether it was in a cave or, or a, a stable, we know that he was likely surrounded by domestic gentle animals, such as sheep, goats, maybe a cow, maybe a little horse. I think our nativity has a donkey, but you know, nice, peaceful, gentle, domestic animals. But in contrast to that, at the time of his death, he was, when he willingly laid himself down, not in a wooden manger, but on a wooden cross. He was surrounded by the piercing cries of vicious crowds of untamed and fierce human animals. And that may sound harsh for me to say, but really all I'm telling you is how the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ himself described those who mocked and scorned and blasphemed him during his first three hours on the cross. In Psalm 22, which we have already discussed, is definitely a messianic psalm. Just look at verse 1 and you know that. It was written by the servant of God, King David, while he was still a shepherd boy, some 1,000 years before Christ was even born, and definitely long before crucifixion was invented as a means of execution. And in this psalm, the Lord himself, the pre-incarnate Christ, in verses 12 to 16, describes those who mocked him while he was hanging suspended on the cross. And how does he describe them? He describes them as bulls and lions and dogs. So you see, I wasn't exaggerating. Let's look at verse 12. He said, Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. Now, Bashan was a farming area known for having very fertile pasture lands. Bulls, Terry probably knows this, bulls generally will form a circle around any new or different object, and they will charge at it. 
for little or no reason. They especially don't like what color? Red, right? So don't go near a bull wearing red. But the enemies of Christ, he says, Christ himself says, were like strong Bashan bulls. They had encircled the base of his cross and they were attacking him without any cause. And what was he covered in? What color? Red, red. Now look at verse 13. The Lord continued describing his mockers, and this time he compares them to lions. He says, they gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. Who were they behaving like? They were behaving just like their father, Satan. They were as ravenous, roaring lions, seeking to devour him with their tearing, rending, bloodthirsty jaws. What else does he describe them like? What other animal? Look at verse 16. Here he calls them dogs, and this isn't referring to your little house pet kind of a dog that we think of. These were unclean, wild pack dogs, scavenger dogs that would roam the streets and and terrify people with their viciousness. The Lord said, for dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. And when was this? When were they doing this? At the time they had pierced his hands and his feet. So according to the pre-incarnate Christ himself, his enemy mockers at the time of his crucifixion were as bulls and as lions and as angry pack dogs. In other words, they possessed the strength of bulls, the ferocious roar of lions, and the savagery of wild pack dogs. Now today, unfortunately, our subject deals with hatred. It's never very fun to talk about hatred. But this is, we're going to be discussing the hatred of the provoking crowd passing by and surrounding the Lord as he hung suspended on the tree during his first three hours of sunlight. I think they all got really quiet during his latter three hours of darkness, but we know that they were just persistent in in scorning him during those three hours of sunlight. The treatment of the most perfect human being who ever has lived The treatment he received from those who looked upon him in his passion is truly a picture, picture, I think we would all agree, of humanity at its very worst. You know, we might think that it's rather incredible that even those who were his worst enemies, the Sanhedrin members, that they would be so malicious and brutal as to hurl ugly taunts at one who was writhing in agony. I mean, after all, don't you think they could have a little compassion on him? They finally got what they wanted, and he's hanging there, crucified. Couldn't they just shut up for once? But do they? No, they don't. And they inspire everybody else, you know, to do the same. And the fury against him didn't just come from these who were his worst enemies. It even came from people who were just casually passing by on that very busy highway. Uh, They also threw mocking abuse at him. And then so did the Roman soldiers. They decided to get in on the fun, and they also mocked the Lord. And who else? The ones you would at least expect to be mocking him were those on either side of him also being crucified. His fellow sufferers joined in in mocking this one on the center cross. It's just amazing. Well, um, I I like alliteration. I like starting our outlines with all the same letters, if that's ever possible. So you can see in your books there that that's what we're going to do. We're going to assign these four sections of this provoking, hateful crowd with titles that all begin with S's. Okay, the first crowd 
is the spectator scoffers, those just passing by on the nearby highway. Then we have the Sanhedrin scoffers, the members of the Sanhedrin. Those would be the chief priests. And then Matthew tells us it also consisted of the scribes and the elders. Then there are the soldier scoffers and the two thieves on either side of him. I call the stealer scoffers. Or you could call them the stealer sufferers because they're also suffering like the Lord is. But what we have is we have the ignorant who jeered at him, people who didn't even really know him, those just passing by, jeering him. The Roman soldiers didn't really know him, they're jeering him. We have the religious elite educated crowd who is jeering at him. We have the indifferent crowd that is jeering at him. And we even have the fellow sufferers who are jeering at him. So he was mocked all around, wasn't he? Every one of these groups cast unjustified, hateful aspersions at the Lord Jesus, who was, during all of this, not only praying for them, but he was dying for them. By the way, uh, last week I was reading something and um, I thought, oh, I need to tell the ladies that because I didn't mention this before because I hadn't thought of it. But you know, the Lord, when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He really was praying for those who did not know what they were doing. That was not an intercessory prayer for those who really did know what they were doing. And there were some out there that did know, like the chief priests and some of those Sanhedrin members who I think were willfully crucifying one they knew truly was the Messiah. All right, but all of this, doesn't this remind us of the hatred of someone else, someone who was invisible to mankind, but who was really behind this whole scene? And his name also begins with an S. How convenient. Satan. (laughs) Yet despite all of the uh, rude mockery and the slanderous hatred and the satanic blasphemy that was being aimed as fiery darts right at the heart of the, the Lord, All of this combined evil, once again, we would know this, we would suspect this by now, is being divinely used to prove that the one on the center cross was indeed the Messiah, the true King of Israel and the true Savior of the world. His enemies were actually proving it. Because they're not only, as we look at what they say in their scoffing remarks, They're not only speaking the truth about the Lord Jesus, they're also fulfilling messianic prophecy. They are indeed the bulls, the lions, and the dogs that are described in Psalm 22. And as we're going to mention later on in this lesson, they even verbalize some of the exact words that we find in Psalm 22, such as in Psalm 22, verse 8. Okay, so keep a marker in Psalm 22, and now we're going to read all three of the passages for this lesson. So if you would flip over to Matthew 27, we're going to look at verses 39 to 44. Matthew 27, verses 39 to 44. All right, it says in verse 39, and they that pass by, this, this would be the uh, spectator scoffers who are just passing by on that nearby highway, they that pass by reviled him wagging their heads and saying, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down 
from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders. That's the Sanhedrin scoffers. They said he saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. You think they would have? Not really. All right, now here is a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 8. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. And here are the um, stealer scoffers, the thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Interesting expression, isn't it? That means that they spit the same thing back in his face that the others were saying. You know, they picked up on all of it. All right, now would you move over to Mark 15? And let's see what Mark says. Basically the same thing, but adds a few little different things here and there. All right, Mark 15, let's start at verse 29. Mark 15, 29. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking said among themselves, that's interesting, among themselves, they wouldn't say it to him because it was beneath their dignity to talk to a criminal. So they say it, you know, right at the foot of the cross so he can hear it, but they're saying this among themselves with the scribes. He saved others, himself he cannot save. Of course, they're being very sarcastic there. Then they go on, let Christ, the king of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him, that's the thieves, reviled him. All right, now Luke, you notice so far we don't have the Romans in on this. Go over to Luke 23. Luke is the only one who tells us that the Roman soldiers joined in with the sport of mocking the suffering Savior. So Luke 23, look at verses 35 to 37. Luke 23. And the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. All right, now we've got all three. Um, It is very, very sad for me to think about the fact that some of the many Passover pilgrims and citizens of Jerusalem who were passing by the Lord during his first three hours on the cross may have been some of the very same people that just a few days before had accepted him as their Messiah and may even have shouted out, Hosanna! to the king of Israel. But now, because he had not led them in a revolution against their Roman oppressors, they're disillusioned about him. Seeing him hanging so powerless on a tree, which their own scripture in Deuteronomy 21-23 meant that he was cursed by God, turned their disappointment in him to anger against him. He had brought them such hope, hadn't he? They really put a lot of hope in him. But now, oh man, he was such a disappointment. And so, therefore, they lashed out at him. You see how fickle the crowd can be? How fickle we can all be? 
And there was no way, you know, to their thinking, and you can kind of identify with this. There's no way in their thinking that he could possibly be their king, much less the son of man, their Messiah, as he so frequently referred to himself. That was his favorite title, the son of man. That was a messianic term. Because now, to their thinking, he is being cursed by God. You know, it says, everyone that hangeth on a tree is cursed by God. So he's being cursed by God for his blasphemy. So you can see how they're thinking. Well, in the original Greek, the verbs, and if you, the reason we went through all three Gospels is so we could see some of the different verbs. It says they reviled him, they mocked him, they derided him, and they railed him. And all of those are given in the imperfect tense, which means that they kept on doing this. A continuous stream of people passing by, they kept uh, throwing at him all of their sneering remarks. And to emphasize their disgust with him, what else did they do? They wagged their heads, you know, like this. When you're disgusted with your child, what do you do? Oh, my, 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 my. Cannot believe you did that. (laughs) My little grandson. My little five-year-old grandson, my daughter will kill me for saying this, but he, he called me last night and he was crying his eyes out. He didn't want to tell me because he thought I would think he was a mean little boy, but he took home one of the toys from the church nursery yesterday from Bible study and Connie found it in his pocket and he was sobbing. He was so broken about it. He said, Grandma, you're going to think I'm a mean little boy? Oh, that's so precious. And I didn't wag my head at him. (laughs) I said, you know, when Grandma was a little girl, she stole a dime from her grandmother, and her grandmother forgave her. Because I was broken over that. I took a dime from my grandmother. And then my daughter, his mommy, she stole a whole gumball machine from the Christian bookstore in Southern Pines. And she, I was telling little... I know, it's a trend. <laughs> so by the time I told Christian all these things, he was feeling better. <laughs> but his mother was ready to kill me. <laughs> anyway, they're wagging their heads. They're shaking their heads at him. That's a way to express, you know, derision and insult. Now, that seems to be kind of a minor thing to for the scripture to tell us, doesn't it? But have we found out that the Holy Spirit ever gives us information that's just, you know, thrown in for fun? No, there's always a purpose for it. Matthew and Mark both told us that they were wagging their heads. Why do you think they did that? Okay, go back to Psalm 22. Here's why. It was a fulfillment of Messianic scripture. Psalm 22, verse 7. This is Jesus speaking, okay, through David. 22.7, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. That's another way of showing derision, you know, pouting at him. And what else do they do? They shake the head, saying, and then it goes on to say, actually what they do say. (laughs) Now there's another psalm that mentions this, Psalm 109.25. You don't need to turn there, but you might want to. I don't know if it's in the books. I can't remember. But in Psalm 109.25, listen, this is what it says. This is again the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus speaking. I became also a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shaked their heads. Isn't that something? Even in the wagging of their heads, they're proving who he was. 
Now we all know by now, or we should know, that the Lord's death and the shedding of his sinless blood was necessary because in the plan of God, blood must be shed for the remission of sin or for the atonement of sin. The blood of animals cannot eternally atone for the sins of human beings. The animals that were sacrificed throughout the Old Testament were merely anticipatory, weren't they? They looked forward to the once-for-all Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God that would end the whole system. They were temporary. They were illustrative. A perfect man needed to die for the sins of mankind. Only one who was made in the likeness of human flesh could be our kinsman redeemer, if you understand what the book of Ruth is all about. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. And it was necessary, too, that Jesus literally be made a curse for us. That's why, you know, cursed is everyone hung on, any man hung on a tree. He literally did become a curse. You know, that, that scripture was true. He had to become a curse for us because the curse of God's law was against us. God gave us the law, but we're all cursed under the law because no one can fulfill the law. We can't even manage to fulfill the Ten Commandments, much less all the rest of the laws. So the curse of God's law was against us. All of this was necessary for our salvation. But what about the mocking? What about the scorning? What about all the spewing of, of hatred against him? What about the vexation against the Lord as he was in the very process of accomplishing his sacrificial work on the cross? You know, all that, all that hatred that was heaved upon him added absolutely nothing. Nothing to the accomplishment of his shed blood and death for us. I have a question. Would his work still have been accomplished on the cross without all that spewed hatred at him? Yes, absolutely. Because he shed his sinless blood and he died for us on the third day he rose again. We still would have been saved from our sins without all of that nastiness. So because of none of, because none of that cruelty added to the Lord's atonement work, we might wonder why God the Father did not just strike some of those head-wagging, tongue-lashing people dead, or just even one of them, in order to set the example for all of them to shush up. You know, if one of them, maybe the loudest chief priest, dropped dead on the spot, kind of think of Ananias and Sapphira, you know. If one of, maybe everybody else would go, ooh, and, and not say anything more. You know, why did he allow the contempt for his son to happen in the first place, much less go on and on and on during those three hours. You know, as I mentioned, the language and the verbs tell us that they hurled these um, things at him repeatedly, and God allowed all of it. Well, of course, we know that prophecy was being fulfilled, right? But God wrote the prophecy. Why did he write the prophecy that all this would happen? Why did he allow it to take to go on for so long? Well, all this brings us to a great theological question. Why does not God deal with sinners more quickly? And in this case in particular, why did God withhold his wrath from those who so degraded the sufferings of his son? These are the most sacred hours in all of human history. It was the ultimate day of atonement. And here was the great high priest, and he was um, entering into the most holy of all holy places. He was dying for sinners. 
and sinners were dishonoring him. And they were blaspheming and degrading him during those very hours. Why did God restrain his wrath? You know, we know, of course, that eventually God does deal with evil. Eventually, right? But what was the wisdom in this particular situation? We've all heard people ask this question. If there is a God in heaven... And if he is just, and if he is concerned about the wrong that people do, then why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he deal with evil right now? How can he let bad things happen to good people? And if ever there was a good person, it was his son up on that cross. How can he let so many evil people prosper? Especially in this case, with his own sinless son, Why did God not intervene by at least silencing the provocation that added absolutely nothing to atonement? Well, there are answers for this, biblical answers. And one of them is rooted in the very nature of God himself. What does the Bible tell us about the nature of God? One thing it tells us is that he is long-suffering. And he is long-suffering to a degree that goes beyond human comprehension. If I was God, I would have wiped out this human race a long time ago. (laughs) We're a bunch of bad, nasty people. What we do to one another, I mean, throughout history is just unbelievable. And then another thing about God that's so very difficult for us to comprehend is his perfect love. God really does love sinful people. He so loved sinful people that he sent his only begotten son to die for us. I, for one, am very glad that God loves sinful people. Aren't you? He really does. And as we mentioned last week, the Lord Jesus, in trying to enable us to understand about the love of God, taught his followers that how are we to love? Not the way the world loves. We're to love even our enemies and pray for them and bless them that that curse us so that we would be like God and show God's character to this world. God is so exceedingly good and long-suffering and loving to sinful people. And then there's also this truth to consider. When men will not, when they stubbornly refuse over and over again to repent and turn from their sin, God will often use them and their sin to actually bring glory to himself. Yes, he is long-suffering, and yes, he really does love sinners. However, if men will not repent and rejoice and receive his, his glorious free grace, I mean, it's totally free, if they will not receive his free grace and his forgiveness, then rather than cutting them off right on the spot, which is his prerogative to do, he can do that. Sometimes maybe he does do that. Well, we know he does. Um, But sometimes, rather than doing that, he may actually employ those unrepentant men and women to bring heightened glory and honor to himself. This is exactly what we saw that he did with the two men most responsible for killing him, murdering him, Caiaphas and Pilate, right? Caiaphas said it's expedient for one man that he should die for the nation. He was saying, you know, he's the Savior, And Pilate put a placard above his head that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jew. One proclaimed he was savior. One proclaimed he was sovereign. God used the evil. That's what it means in Psalm 7610 when it says that God even uses the wrath of men to praise him. 
And if ever there was a time in Christ's life when God used the evil, blasphemous words of sinners to glorify him himself, it was when these four different groups of people, spurned on by Satan himself, jeered and mocked and derided the suffering Savior. What we find when we look at the specific words of these that were taunting Christ is that God was using those very words as powerful and very vivid testimony as to the truth of his son, who he was. Let's consider what was said to the Lord that day. First of all, by looking at Matthew 27, verses 39 and 40. Matthew 27, look at verses 39 and 40. I've got to get there too. Here. But still keep your finger over in Psalm 22, all right? All right, it says... Uh, this is the words of the passerbyers, you know, then the people that were wagging their head. And look at verse 40. It says there, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. What are they referring to here? Well, they're referring to John 2.19. After his first early ministry cleansing of the temple, Jesus had immediately been challenged by the irate Jews. They were mad. Why? Because he had just affected their income Yeah, when he cleansed the temple and they were making a lot of money off of the people. But the Jews came to him and asked him for a sign to demonstrate that he had the authority to do such a thing, to come to the temple suddenly. They didn't know who he was. All of a sudden, he just appears. This is the one. Right after the wilderness experience, first thing he does, uh, comes to the temple, shows up in Jerusalem, goes straight there and cleanses it single-handedly. Who's this guy? Show us a sign that you have the authority to do this. What is so incredible, it makes me laugh to think about, is he just gave them a sign. It says in Malachi 3, verses 1 to 3, that you will know the Messiah because he's going to come suddenly to his temple. And guess what he's going to do? Clean it. Purify the sons of Levi. He just gave them the sign. And what do they do? Duh. These are the scholars of the scripture. They say, show us a sign. Give us a sign. So he gives them one. And uh, it's, he's, he, give, he gives his, his answer in an enigmatic way. Do you know what that means? Enigmatic. It means that he gave it, it was designed to be mysterious, a mysterious kind of saying, kind of like his parables, so that you would have to ask more questions and probe in order to understand what he was really saying. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now we know, because John tells us in uh, John 2.21, that he was speaking about what? His body. <laughs> He's speaking about his body. Destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. Well, you know, it's interesting, but we have no further mention of those words in the gospel accounts until we come to the Passion Week. Actually, the wee hours of the morning on crucifixion day, just hours previously to the Lord being on the cross during one of his trials with the Jews. Remember, they had gone out and got false witnesses, brought those false witnesses in. And what did the false witnesses say? He said he was going to destroy the temple and build it back up in three days. He never said build, did he? He said raise. Um, 
but they were false witnesses. They misquoted him, and none of them were consistent with one another, so they didn't count. But that now, for the second time in the Passion Week, actually the same day, Crucifixion Day, we hear about this prophecy again. And it's while Jesus is hanging on the cross. And I want to read you what Mark says, because he says that um, the scoffers say, Ah, you would destroy the temple and build it back in three days. And I wanted to mention that, because that's the only time in the whole New Testament that we have the word, ah. And you all go, ah. Very interesting. <laughs> That's just a trivial thing, isn't it? But um, they're, they're mocking him. It's ridiculous to them to consider such a thing, you know, that he said he would destroy the temple and build it back in three days because the temple was huge. At this time, it had been in building. It was still being built, Herod's temple. Um, it had been in building some 50 years now, and it would not be complete until the year 64 A.D. It wouldn't be complete till 64 A.D. When would it be destroyed? Not one stone upon another. 70 A.D. You know, it only stayed in its completed form for six years. Isn't that interesting? Six it was man's temple, wasn't it? Anyway, um, they thought it was just ludicrous. You're going to destroy that? They have found that some of the individual stones of that temple weighed over a 100 tons. It was just impossible that a single person could destroy something so big, so sturdy, so permanent. Um, it was the pride and the joy of the Jewish people. The thought of someone thinking of destroying it actually infuriated them. Of course, what's interesting to me is that nobody ever seemed to realize that it was their spiritual leaders who actually had destroyed the temple. They had turned it into a den of thieves, hadn't they? Jesus is the one who came along twice. First thing in his ministry and one of the last things in his ministry on Monday of the Passion Week. Cleansed it twice. He is the one who had a zeal for the temple of God, his father's house. But they never realized that. So here again, they are misunderstanding and they are misquoting him and they're laughing him to scorn now that he was the one who was being destroyed. <laughs> Not the temple of God. Think about that. Hmm, really interesting, isn't it? Look at him. He's being destroyed. Not the temple. No wonder he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So they thought it was absolutely the height of humor and something that they, you know, could torment him with. You were going to destroy the temple. Ha, 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 look at you now. You're the one being destroyed. But how was God actually using their taunt to bring testimony that glorified his son? Well, not only were they reminding everyone there, everyone who passed by, everyone who was standing around the cross, you know, as they're repeatedly saying this, and not only are they, they're also reminding you and I, everyone who's ever read the New Testament, about the very first sign that Jesus had given Israel in his earthly ministry, the sign that would once for all prove that he did have the divine authority to sanctify the physical temple and actually do anything else he wanted. 
was showing them. You know, they asked him again in Matthew 12, after he had healed a blind, deaf, deaf, dumb man or something like that. They asked him again for a sign as if he hadn't been giving them a million signs, you know, with all of his miracles. They said, give us a sign. And he gave them the same one, except in a different way. He said, as Jonah the prophet was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. So, you know, so the only sign he really gives them is the sign of his resurrection. But he's, uh, so he's proving, <laughs> um, who he is, the sign that, that's the only sign, I can't remember, I lost my place, but they're actually doing, it's funny to me, they're actually doing at that very moment, the very thing that he had enigmatically, you know, mysteriously implied that they would do when he said, destroy this temple. The fact is, Jesus never said, I will destroy the temple, did he? Those weren't his words. You can go look them up, John 2, 19. He didn't say, I will destroy this temple. He said, destroy this temple. And the implied subject is what? You, you guys, you Jews, destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I'll raise it up. And isn't that exactly what they were doing right then and there? On the cross, they were destroying the temple. And uh, because they were destroying the human body of the living God. And think of this. They were not only doing what he said they would do, but they were actually repeating over and over again the prediction of his third day resurrection. You know, they said build, but he said raise. But still, they're reminding everybody there. He said that he would raise it up on the third day. You know, everyone present that day at Skull Hill was being reminded of the ultimate sign of his divine authority. It's just fantastic. Well, we also want to take a note at some of the titles that these mockers used as they're mocking him for the first three hours. They call him the Son of God. You know, they make reference to his claim to be the Son of God. They, uh, they call him by the title, the King of Israel. If you look through all three synoptics, you'll find these titles. They also say, let Christ the King of Israel. And they, in another place, uh, over in Luke, they call him Christ the Chosen of God. So just like Pilate's placard over his head, these taunts are serving as gospel tracts. <laughs> as testimonies of his identity. Can you imagine? Over and over again, people everywhere that day on Skull Hill are hearing the words, the King of Israel, the Son of God, the Christ, the King of Israel, the Christ, the Chosen of God. Do you think that there had ever been anyone executed at that site or anywhere else, for that matter, who had been addressed in such terms? No way. But on that day, those titles were spoken over and over again by numerous people from all kinds of backgrounds and from all kinds of places and in all kinds of different languages. I mean, it was the track, the truth getting out, wasn't it? What does all of this say? It says that although he was numbered with the transgressors, this middle figure on the middle cross is the king of Israel, the Christ. The chosen of God, the very Son of God. Well, in Matthew 27, verse 42, <coughs> the religious rulers bore testimony that Jesus had saved others. He saved others. Look at those first three words. Now, of course, they're not referring here to spiritual salvation, are they? 
But the Greek word they use, sozo, actually is used for the salvation of sinners. So they're speaking the truth. He had saved people. He had saved sinners. What they imply is the other meaning of sozo, which can mean that he saved people from maladies, sicknesses, handicaps, leprosy, even death. You know, there was never, ever any dispute about that, was there? They knew he had miraculous powers. They couldn't deny it. There were far too many witnesses that he even raised Lazarus. They never denied that. Now, of course, they ascribed his powers to Beelzebub, didn't they, instead of to God. But they never denied that he had performed great and mighty miracles. And so now their taunt also serves as a testimony to his miracles. Miracles that actually validated his claims to being the son of God. Which was why they were crucifying him. Think of it. I mean, it's just it does. It's not logical, is it? it? Doesn't make sense. But when you're evil, you don't care about logic and making sense. But do you see what God is doing here, and why He's allowing all these this mockery to continue? Why? Because they're actually giving testimony to the person of His Son. The taunts turn to testimony. But the remainder of verse forty-two is is the most profound taunt testimony of all. When they said he saved others, what else did he say? They say, I'm sorry, they, the scoffers, the, the religious rulers. He, right. He saved others, and then they go on and say, himself he cannot save. You know what? That's absolutely true. Just like Caiaphas and Pilate, they're speaking the truth. It is a testimony to the impossibility of the Savior saving himself. You see, it could not be done and have our salvation procured. It's not really that he could not. It's that he would not. And because he would not, he could not. He was our Savior. If he saved himself, none of us would still be, wouldn't be saved, would we? These people were witnessing the greatest saving act in the history of the world. It so far seeds the great, greatest Old Testament miracle, which was the dividing of the Red Sea. That's what God always reminded Israel about, you know, when I saved you from the annihilation by the Egyptians, when you were escaping from Egypt and I opened the Red Sea. But this miracle so far exceeds that, that it really isn't even a comparison. This is the redemptive act that will provide for the eternal well-being and glorification of God by millions of sinners for all eternity. And this act, this wonderful, glorious, most wonderful miracle ever, was happening right before their eyes. And they didn't see it. They didn't see it. But they do say what is true about it. He saved others. He did. He saved me. He saved a lot of us. I hope everyone in this room. He did save others. But himself, he cannot save. If they understood the doctrine or the theology behind what they were saying, they would realize that the Bible teaches, and they should have known this, that from, from Eden forward, the Bible taught and teaches the necessity of um, substitutionary atonement. 
God made clothing for the first sinners by doing what? By shedding the blood of an innocent animal, a substitutionary animal. He had to kill the animal in order to put the skins of the animal on Adam and Eve. Lives were forfeited because of Adam's sin. And from that point on, there is this matter of God substituting in the place of sinners bulls and goats and rams and lambs and doves, etc., whose lives would be taken in order to spare transgressors. Substitutionary atonement is God's only way of sparing guilty people. Now, we might say, I don't like that plan. Too bad. It's God's plan. He devised it, and his mind is so much higher than our mind, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I hope you admit that. His ways are above ours. And so someone, some sinless one, had to experience death and the penalty for our sin. And, and to this very day, unfortunately, substitutionary atonement is not only misunderstood and denied and ridiculed and even rejected by the world out there, but sadly, even by many within Christendom. I could give you many examples of that going on in churches today, um, but I'm going to just give you one. There's a very well-known author and pastor over in Britain named Stephen Chalk, who does a lot of good works and raises a lot of money for charities and (coughs) that sort of thing, but he doesn't understand the gospel. Because he mocks the idea of substitutionary atonement, he literally calls it cosmic child abuse. He says that if you believe in substitutionary atonement, that God the Father punished his son for your sin, then you believe in cosmic child abuse. Now, he's just one of many that say this, okay? But let's look at something carefully. Let me remind you of the very first time that Jesus made it crystal clear to his followers, his disciples, that he was going to die. And this was in Matthew 16, 21. You'll know about it when I talk about it. But he made it very clear that he was going to be delivered over to the chief priests who would deliver him over to Pilate and he would suffer many things at their hands and they would crucify him. But he would raise on the third day. Well, Peter, of course it was Peter, (laughs) spoke up. Actually, he... I think he was speaking for all the other men, but he pulled the Lord aside to rebuke him. And what did Peter say to the Lord? He said, God forbid, Lord, this shall not be unto you. You know, no way is this going to happen to you. You are not going to die. In other words, what was Peter saying? He was saying, save yourself, spare yourself. God forbid that you should die. His followers, his own followers, those closest to him, misunderstood and reacted against his death, didn't they, initially? They rejected it. But what we want to see is the Lord's response to what Peter said, to that rejection of his death. How did did the Lord respond? You all know. Get thee behind me, Satan. He said, you are an offense to me. You're trying to be a stumbling block to me to tell me not to die. Just like they're saying, come down out of the cross. That's to be that's a stumbling block. 
He said, you're savoring the things not of God, but those things of man. You're not thinking like God, you're thinking like man. So do you get it? To reject Jesus' substitutionary atonement is what? In one word, it is satanic. It's satanic to suggest that Jesus saved himself. He could not save himself and be a savior. What these mockers were saying that day, he cannot save himself, is gospel truth. And God used their words to glorify his son. You see, any gospel that teaches salvation apart from Jesus dying in our place and for our sins, any theology, any religion, any teaching that claims there is salvation apart from Jesus' death for sinners is no true religion. It's no true gospel. If you pick up a book like that or hear someone preach like that, discard it. There is no gospel apart from the substitutionary atonement of the Son of God in the place of sinful human beings, period. Well, since everyone seemed to be having such a great time, you know, uh, ridiculing the person on the middle cross, the Roman soldiers decided to get in on the sport. And they also began to taunt Jesus. They heard everybody else saying, so they picked up on it. However, notice they say nothing about him being the Christ. This is in Luke 23, verse 36 and 37. They don't care anything about the Jewish Messiah. So they ignore that particular taunt. But um, because they so despise the Jewish people and their fanatical one-God religion that made them so difficult to deal with and rule over, they did mock the idea of Jesus as their king. So, what do they say? They focus on that superscription over his head, and it says in, in Luke twenty-three thirty-six, and the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. By the way, this is the second offering of a drink. The first offering was mixed with myrrh. This one isn't. This is just cheap wine vinegar. They offer it to him. I doubt he accepted it, but they're just mocking him. Here, king, have a drink, you know. They're having great sport like they did when they put the crown of thorns and the cape on him. Um, They're not doing it in mercy as the daughters of Jerusalem did when they offered that first drink, which he refused. This time it's offer in mockery. (laughs) And they heard the others talking about him saving himself, um, not being able to save himself as he saved others. Well, they didn't probably know. Maybe they heard a little bit about the fact that he could save people with his miracle powers. I don't know. But that isn't what they cared about. They only knew that he claimed to be a king. And um, if he was a king, then he should display power by saving himself. You know, where's his army? If he's a king, call out your army. In the Roman mindset, the test of kingship rested on a man's ability to take care of himself or at least to have an army to fight for himself. From the worldly examples of kingship that they had ever seen or experienced, these soldiers did not understand or appreciate the true purpose and function of a king. You know what a true king should do? I don't know if the world has ever seen any. It will in the millennial kingdom. But a true king is to take the care of the people of his kingdom. He should be the greatest servant of all. 
They, however, saw things from the world's perspective. They saw that the qualification of a king would be his ability to break people and to rule over people, to subdue people, and to have people wait on him. What do most kings do? Raise taxes so that they can have more, right? Big, a big, build a bigger palace and all that sort of thing. They could not imagine a king who would allow himself to be broken and subdued and ruled over in order to give life and joy and peace and eternal life to his subjects. So we can understand how they were thinking because that's the world's way of thinking. So you see, now there was temptation, not only from the Jews, but there's temptation from the Gentiles as well, isn't there? If, if, he, if he wanted to prove who he really was, why didn't he just come down from the cross? Because then instantly he would have the respect of the Jewish world and the Gentile world, right? And they would believe him. That's what they said. Now we'll believe. Well, how long do you think that they would respect him and believe in him? Till the first time he opened his mouth and called them sinners. That would be the end. They'd nail him right back up there on the cross. Notice that the mockers said in verse 43, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. What are they doing here? They're taunting Jesus for his amazing trust in God his Father. Again, truth is spoken here, isn't it? Because he did trust in God his Father. Furthermore, they're fulfilling prophecy again. Are you still got a marker in Psalm 22? Go back there one more time. Psalm 22, look at verse 8. This is amazing. If you compare these words, they're identical. What did David say? A thousand and thirty-three years before it happened that the mockers would be saying? Verse 8, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighteth in him. Seeing is actually if he delighteth in him. You know, those are the exact words that those mockers were saying. I couldn't help but wonder if one of those scribes or Pharisees one day was in the morning, was doing his devotionals, and he happened to open up to Psalm 22, and he started reading the psalm, and it, oh my word. Everything he read in that psalm was exactly what he had experienced at the foot of the cross. Those words he trusted. I said those words myself. My God, my God, why has so forsaken me? He said that. And it dawned on him. And he got saved. Don't you know that happened? I know it happened. I know it happened. So what have we seen by way of the mockery of the Lord Jesus as he hung on the cross? Well, the people were testifying of the very sign that he had given as his divine authority. And they were reminding everyone of it, which is interesting because it was being fulfilled before their very eyes. They were destroying the temple of God, which he said, and they repeated it, that he would raise back in three days. Also, their taunts were serving as testimony to his true identity as the Christ, the chosen of God, the King of Israel, and the Son of, the Son of God. Their taunts also verified his amazing miracles that he did save people with his miraculous powers. 
And he also saved people spiritually. And they gave the great truth about substitutionary atonement. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Last, their taunting gave public testimony to his amazing trust in God. He trusted in God. How did they know that? How did they know he trusted in God? They'd been watching him. They knew he trusted in God. And very soon, they would watch. His, they would witness his greatest trust in his father when he would bow his head right before he gave up his own spirit and he would say, what? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. You see, true likeness involves denying oneself, taking up one's cross, and what? Trusting God. Even if the warfare eventuates in the loss of everything, even one's life, we have brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries who are denying self, taking up their cross, and losing everything, even their lives. And it may get that way here. So often we think that our faith and our trust is proven when God steps in. You know, and when he intervenes in our problems and in our difficulties, when he rescues us from troublesome circumstances, or when he delivers us from some great burden in our lives. And when he does that, then we think, oh, this proves we had trust and faith. You know, this proves the greatness of our faith. But let me tell you something, and I really want you to move in and listen to this. Hear this. This is very important. The greatest faith of all. The greatest faith of all is shown when God does not intervene in our troubles and in our difficulties. And yet we, like Job, can say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. That's the greatest test of our faith, isn't it? So how is the wisdom of God displayed in withholding his wrath upon those who were scorning and blaspheming his son during his suffering? It was displayed in the way he used their taunts not only to fulfill his own purposes, but to give glorious testimony to his son. Yes, God is long-suffering. And he truly does love sinners. And more than any other time or any other place, he was displaying his great love for sinful people on the cross, wasn't he? As, as he was giving his only begotten son. And uh, he was, again, using the wrath of men to praise him. And did it? Did it praise him? Yeah, there was an immediate, immediate praise. Because we're going to see this next week. There was that day a taunting sinner who was converted. And he was one of those stealer, scorner, sufferers next to him, wasn't he? The one who had been casting the same things in his teeth. And amazingly, all the, everything he was hearing that day, everything he was watching as the one on the cross was suffering... 
and praying, Father, forgive them. And the placard over his, all of that gospel track stuff got, finally got through to his heart and he got saved. And that's what we're going to look at. Two weeks from now, when you come back, do, we actually got through a whole lesson. Can you believe that? So you have 10 questions to answer this week. I know that's a lot, but you have two weeks to do it. Don't go anywhere because we're going to have a blessing right now, but I want to close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that sometimes your love is best displayed against the background of human cruelty. Thank you, Lord, that you do move in such mysterious ways your wonders to perform. Our hearts today are, are drawn toward you and toward the marvel of your infinite mind and your great wisdom and how how you can take the worst that has ever, ever been done and turn it into the greatest of all redemptive acts. We thank you for that. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for Linda, and we ask that you would bless us now through her song. For we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I think those songs speak perfectly with this message, so hope hope it blesses you. <clears throat> of crimson God wrote his love on a hillside so long long ago for you and for me Jesus died and love's greatest story was told. I love you. I love you. That's what Calvary With the same hands that suffered and
what Calvary said. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you, I 